Welcome to the Montgomery Community Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to grow deeper in your faith. If you'd like to learn more about MCC, you can visit our website at mcc.church. So thankful to be here as we continue in this series, which is an incredibly important series given our culture, given everything that's going on. As you're well aware, I think, there's a lot of hurting people in the world today. There's a lot of hurting people on your street today. There's a lot of hurting people in your workplace. There's a lot of hurting people maybe in your own family. And how we respond to people in their hurt is so incredibly important because we're called to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. We're called to be salt and light, which means bringing truth, but bringing healing and helping people along the way. And there's a lot of opportunity because there's just a lot of hurting people. Uh, Whether it be the hurricanes that are going on right now, right? The people in Afghanistan that we're praying for and uh, for their safety. Uh, Whether it be people who uh, are experiencing physical setbacks in our own life or whatever. There's just a lot of hurting people. And here's what I've been learning. And I keep learning that no matter if the hurt comes from our own choices, which many times it does, or whether it comes from the words or actions of others, or whether the hurt comes from surprises that just seem to come from nowhere, the result is still the same. Pain. Pain. And sometimes people don't know what to do with that pain. And so whenever somebody's in the midst of serious pain in their life, it either draws them closer to God or it draws them further away from God. And again, how we respond to people in the midst of their pain is so incredibly important. We see this in our culture today in this series. We've been talking about it, that there's many people in the midst of their pain, in the midst of different things that they've experienced, that rather than draw closer to God, they've chosen the path of deconstruction. And that's the identification of the constructed elements of one's faith, followed by the dismantling of each core belief in order to discern what might be useful, abandoned, or redefined. And so someone who's grown up in the faith, they've constructed the faith based on what they were taught in church, what they read in the Bible, what their parents taught them. Suddenly, when something comes their way, they look at it all, and they start kind of reframing the Bible in different ways, sometimes a way that works for them way that's useful for them. They abandon some other parts because maybe they don't fully understand what those parts are saying. That's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, But but they're trying to, to grapple with it. And this is the pathway of deconstruction. And we began last week in asking the question, why would people go down this road? Well, they start asking doubt filled questions because of what's known as an anomaly. An anomaly. That's an experience that deviates from what is standard, learned, or experienced, and so, or expected. And so what happens is you're walking down your road, walking down your life, and suddenly you hear something that doesn't sit right with you, and you're not sure what to do with it. Or you see something that rocks your world, or you experience something that you, you kind of walk that journey alone, it's very difficult for you, and that is an anomaly. Last weekend, we took a look at the anomaly of trauma. We learned that when somebody experiences trauma in their life, they can lose hope. They can. And they can start asking questions that lead to all kinds of disillusionment. And so we learned that how we respond in that moment is critical because if we provide simple answers to people in their pain, 
If we provide blame-centered answers, oh, that's why that happened to you. Have you seen that? Or if we provide instructive answers, well, here's what you gotta do next. Or answers filled with Christianese, those who hear us may go out searching in order to hear someone else. And we've lost our chance. We've lost the effectiveness we could have had representing Jesus to them in that situation. And that goes to the anomaly we're gonna talk about today because those who have been walking away from the faith have said their top three anomalies, trauma, and then this one we're gonna talk about today and next weekend we'll address the third one, the anomaly of perceived contradictions in the Bible. Now I, I mentioned the word perceived because it's there for a reason. Because these are perceptions people have, they've been taught something perhaps, or they've learned something a certain way and they really wrestle with it, and this would be a perceived contradiction. And I'm gonna address maybe some of the top ones today. Not all of them don't have time for that. But these questions, I can just guarantee you, wherever you're going, wherever you live, there are people who are wrestling with these. How will you respond to them? How will you respond to them? One is this, young earth versus old earth, right? Young earth view of, the, of, of creation is this idea that we see that God created the world in six literal 24-hour days. And then there are others who say, well, you know, a day is like you know, a thousand years in the Bible. That's what the Bible says. So God could have created the world over a long period of time. And some would even say that evolution somehow could fit in that old earth view. We gotta go back to the Bible and it says this in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God did what? He created. How? That's led people to sometimes walk away from the faith based on what's been taught to them or how it's been taught to them. Friends, I'll never forget, uh, going across the street, I met this young couple for lunch at Deshaies. We sat down in the booth. We began having our conversation. They wanted to get married. But they said, you know what? You, you gotta know this about us if you're gonna marry us. I mean, both of us have left the Christian faith. And I said, well, why? What, what caused that? And they said, well, we were both taught that the world was created in six, you know, literal 24-hour days. Science says, you know, it was created over a long period of time. And then I'll never forget what they said to me. Here are the words. If the beginning of the Bible is wrong, why should we believe anything that's written afterwards? How would you respond to that question? How would you respond? I mean, based on what schools are teaching over the past several decades, right, it's likely that your child, your grandchild, your niece, your nephew, brother or sister, they're grappling with this question. And so your call, should you choose to accept it, is to help them move beyond doubt in order to embrace God fully. We're called to be salt and light. And I would say this holds especially true in light of where we live. You see, if after church today and those who are watching online, if you drove 30 to 40 minutes in the right direction, uh, you might find yourself entering the parking lot of what's known as the Creation Museum. And I've been there several times. I encourage you to go. I think it's pretty astounding. I've been impressed with, with how they present really their, their responses to critical questions. I think it's important that you go. But as I say that, I, I also wanna let you know, I struggle significantly 
with something its founder is noted to say. And his words have been broadcast in different settings. And here's what he said. If Christians don't believe in a literal Genesis, they have no foundation for their doctrine. Think about that. Let me boil that down. It's basically saying, if you don't agree with the young earth view, if, if you don't agree that God created the world in six literal 24-hour days, then you really have no foundation for your faith, which could mean that you have no faith at all. Now, I have friends in my life I've known for decades, and they would argue you down to the ground on this one. Uh, they would say that you cannot be a Christian unless you believe that particular view of creation. And friends, as I engage with people, that strong way of stating this and believing that doesn't help those who are doubting to embrace the faith. It just doesn't. And so I think we gotta approach this humbly. And maybe we would ask, well, did Jesus teach a literal six-day creation? Well, you know, some say he did. Uh, in Mark 10, 6, he said, but from the beginning, key word there, I underlined it in my text, of the creation, God made them male and female. I want you to notice the word beginning because it's linked directly back to the Old Testament where it says, in the beginning. And so many times we tend to think of that as like a quick starting point, like a gun going off at the beginning of the race. It's an incredibly important beginning, but it's also incredibly brief. Like if you were texting your friend back when it happened, you missed it, right? But this is not always really what the Hebrew text is pointing to. The word beginning, resheath, uh, many times in scripture is pointing to a long season of someone's life or just a long season. For example, in Job 8, your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. And if you read this text more fully, you'll see that the beginning, this resheath, clearly does not refer to just the moment he was born. Rather, it refers to the decades of time that took place from when Job was a young boy, grew to full maturity, raised his family, experienced great success, and, and gained much wealth. So Job's beginning literally took decades. Then there's another guy in the Bible named Nimrod. You might be fascinated with his name and find it interesting, maybe don't know much about him, but let me just let you in on something here in Genesis 10 as it refers to him. The Bible tells us the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Cana in the land of Shinar. So in ancient times, the, the beginning or the resheath of a leader's kingdom would take years and decades of time. The beginning of, of a, a kingdom wouldn't just be when he was crowned king that would start the beginning, but the beginning would last a long period of time as the king would build his kingdom and acquire more and build more buildings. And then finally at the beginning of the beginning period, then he would be established. So a beginning could take a long period of time. And when people come at this and they say, well, you know, you, you can't be a Christian unless you believe uh, this certain view, I have to look at Jesus. And if you open up the pages of the Gospels, you won't find a Jesus whoever says that, it, that in order to be forgiven, in order to be his follower, you have to believe the young earth view. You're not gonna find a Jesus you know, in the Gospels that would say in order to be an effective disciple and witness for me, you have to believe this view. You see, whenever we make a non-essential an essential of the Christian faith, we can unintentionally help people to walk away from the Christian faith. Rather, let's embrace a bit of humility and let's listen to others. 
And as we do that, friends, we would learn that there are many well-respected theologians and scientists out there who would state that based on the original language, the Bible would clearly teach that the world was created over a long period of time. Francis Collins is a man you have seen, I'm sure, on TV, especially over the last year and a half. Um, he is a scientist, and uh, he is, is a very interesting man because science led him to the Christian faith. He was, he was just say he didn't believe in anything, and then his study of science led him to become a Christian. Now, he's a very important scientist in our country. He headed up the Genome Project some years ago. He was appointed by President Barack Obama to serve as the director of National Institutes of Health. I mean, he served under this capacity under President Trump and currently under President Biden. And he says that, you know, basically, we, we got to look at this a bit differently. That's why through his organization, he's encouraging people to find a middle ground between this young earth view and what science says. And here's what he says. As believers, you're right to hold fast to the concept of God as creator. You're right to hold fast to the truths of the Bible. You're right to hold fast to the conclusion that science offers no answers to the most pressing questions of human existence. And you're right to hold fast to the certainty that the claims of atheistic materialism must steadfastly be resisted. But those battles cannot be won by attaching your position to a flawed foundation. To continue to do so offers the opportunity for opponents of the faith, and there are many, to win a long series of easy victories. So if you have someone in your life that's struggling with faith because of creation or how it came about or what they were taught, I'd encourage you to remind them that God did create all things. And that creation process could have taken place over a short period of time because he is God. And it could have taken place over a long period of time because he is God. And that this is not a matter of their salvation. See, it's okay to admit as a Christian that we don't understand necessarily how everything all fell into, the, into place. And it's also okay for us to really fully admit that science doesn't have the answers to this. If you study science as, a, as in terms of creation, you will see that their view on how this whole world came to be has changed again and again and again and again. So encourage them to investigate scripture. And whatever you do as you're talking to someone, remind them that their faith in Jesus Christ, their being a son or daughter of the most high God is not hinged on some other person's strong view of how the world came to be. Encourage them to rest on knowing that God created them because he loves them. Help them to move beyond doubt. Now for some, the anomaly of, of, of you know, how the world came to be is, is their pathway to deconstruction. But for others, it has nothing to do with what God created or how he necessarily created. It has much to do with the character of the creator himself, God. And you may have heard this before. People say, well, is God a loving God? Or is God an angry God? And when people fall on the other side of the equation, they sometimes wrestle with embracing him. They would say something like, well, if God is good, if God is loving, why does he completely annihilate an entire group of people? I mean, didn't God create them in his image too? So why would I want to believe in a God like that? How would you respond to somebody who has that wrestle? How would you help them to move beyond doubt? What would that conversation look like? You see, friends, as Christians, we gotta have good answers to this, humble answers to this. 
because there are many who come from this point of view. In fact, Richard Dawkins, one of the most famous atheists living today, has taken great issue with the Canaanite invasion you see in the Old Testament. And from what he sees described in the biblical text, he also has stated something. It's a very popular statement out there. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Notice the word fiction. And as you look at this, Dawkins describes the God of the Old Testament as unpleasant due to God's propensity to command genocide. And I would say, since the Canaanite invasion has garnered so much attention out there, and people say, well, this is an angry God, why would I want to love him? He annihilates all these people. Let's take a look at the passage. Because it seems that God certainly did order something here. And here's the outflow of it in Joshua 10. I want you to pay very close attention here. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned around and attacked Debir. Remember that, Debir. They took the city, its kings and its villages, and put them to the sword. Everyone in it they totally destroyed. So it seems that there was not a single person living because they totally destroyed everybody there. So the text seems pretty clear. If you lived in Debir, you were toast. And this is why many people like Dawkins would close the pages of the Bible and they'd walk away and they'd announce their harsh judgment about a harsh God. But I'd say this. Remember, we've talked about context many times before. When we read something, we have to read before it and after it to understand what that text is really saying. And so if somebody like Richard Dawkins or others, maybe your friend, would read a little bit longer and a little bit further, they'd stumble across some confusing but very helpful statements. Because in the very next chapter, the city of Debir is mentioned again. At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron, Debir, there it is, and Anab, from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. Well, that should cause us to ask a question. Weren't all these people in Debir like completely destroyed earlier in chapter 10? So how could they be totally destroyed once again in chapter 11? That's kind of puzzling. And then to add to the confusion, if you take a look at the verses I just read, you'll notice the Anakites. They are mentioned. And chapter 11 tells us these people were totally destroyed. And then later again in chapter 15, they're mentioned again. Did they rise from the dead? I mean, what's going on here? The text tells us, in accordance with the Lord's command to him, Joshua gave to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, a portion in Judah. Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, Arba was the forefather of Anak. From Hebron, Caleb drove out the three Anakites, Shishai, Ahiman, Telmai, the sons of Anak. So we have to ask them, how could Caleb drive out three Anakites who are named specifically? They're named. How could he do that if they were totally destroyed previously? So just to clarify, People who are totally destroyed show up again, only to be totally destroyed, only to show up again, only to be totally destroyed, only to show up a third time. These people are resilient. So what in the world is going on? Well, before I get there, which leader led the Jewish people to destroy all these people? Well, the text tells us, they left no one who breathed, just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant. So God originally commanded Moses uh, to engage in war with these people, these people who were killed and then live and then killed and then live and killed and then live. So what's going on? When I grew up in Jenison, Michigan, I had a friend named Todd, and he was a lover of football, and I soon became a lover of football. 
And this has been a problem for some here in Cincinnati because the football team I really was enamored with uh, was the Pittsburgh Steelers. All right, that was back then. Forgive me, right? Um, but, you know, Lynn Swan, I mean, he would just pull the ball from out of the air. I mean, who can do that? And so I was just enamored with the Pittsburgh Steelers. And so people here learned that. And, you know, so out of their love for me, I guess, um, the last time the Bengals defeated the Steelers, people from this church who have you know, my best interest in mind came to me and said, Phil, did you see the game? The Bengals annihilated the Steelers. Phil, did you see that game? They killed the Steelers. It was awesome. Such love. Such love. And yet a strange thing happened when I turned on my TV the next Sunday. The Pittsburgh Steelers, every single one of them, ran out onto the field in order to play their next opponent. I thought they were annihilated. I thought that they were killed. So what's going on? It's called hyperbole. Hyperbole. Hyperbole is an exaggerated claim meant to convey a point, but not to be taken literally. And we use hyperbole all the time. You know, this bag weighs a ton. We all know it doesn't. She runs faster than the wind. That man is as tall as a house. My dad's going to kill me when I get home. Hyperbole. There's a good amount of hyperbole utilized in the Bible as well. In fact, as it relates to the book of Joshua, the reason hyperbole is used was to convey that Israel won the battle, not to convey that all these people were killed. So God did not order genocide here. But let me say this. We gotta keep this in mind. God is just. He is good, he is holy, and he is not bounded by time. And he can see down the tunnels of time. He can see if a particular group of people really are going to destroy an entire other group of people. He can see that intention. And so at times he does order you know, a battle against them. And so when someone loves you and tells you they're struggling with God because he is so violent, encourage them that hyperbole might very well be a play. And I encourage you also to remind them that it's a loving God who would often call people to take action against those who are evil, like the Nazis, for example. It's a loving God that would say, get in the game. These people are gonna annihilate all these people who were made in my image. So encourage discussion, listen intently. Ask if they wanna hear your perspective and always remember that the pain and death of any person is not to be taken lightly. And that brings me to the last perceived biblical contradiction that I often hear from people. And you may have heard this as well as people live their daily lives. You know, when they, they go about their life and they experience pain that's inflicted from someone that they know, they often say, well, why didn't God do anything about that? Why didn't he stop them? Like when a close friend betrays them, a boss fires them, a family member hurts them in some way, they come to the point and they say, okay, is God an active God or is he a passive God? And they wrestle. And with that wrestle, some walk away. Now, those who cite that God is active, they look to Lamentations 3. Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? And those who think God is more passive, they'd look to Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And when we embrace this view, sometimes we take it even deeper. 
We sometimes blame God for a horrible event. Or we blame God for not caring enough or having enough power to stop something from happening. Blame. It is the second sin we actually find in the Bible. That's why we've been doing it for a very long time. It was one of the original sins. I mean, after Adam committed the first sin known as disobedience, Adam turned around and blamed others for what he had done. God, this woman made me do it, so it's her fault. And by the way, God, I wouldn't have wrestled with this at all if you hadn't given her to me. I don't remember asking you for her, so it's really your fault. Blame. It's everywhere. So whenever somebody's hurt with the actions of somebody else, it'd be best really to, to remind them in a humble, gentle way of how God really designed everything. See, you could have made us like puppets on a string. Uh, that would be like an active God in the mind of some. It's almost like he's playing both sides of the chess table, right? He's moving a king or a queen, and he goes to the other side, and he moves this piece, and then he moves that piece, and, and we're, we're just kind of helpless. It just happens the way that God wants everything to happen. And then there are others say, you know, he's passive. That'd be the deist point of view. I call it the Bette Midler theology. God is watching us where? From a distance. Way out there, but he's not involved in anything. Rather, we see something different here. In the Bible, Genesis 2, God made a special place for man, and then he gave him these instructions. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So what we see is God gave human beings free will. And that means you and I, we get to make a lot of different choices, a lot of choices. But the text is also clear that God gave humans parameters, that our choices come with some limitations. Uh, for Adam and Eve, it was the garden. For us, it's where we were born. You have different choices being born in Cincinnati than you do if you're born in Los Angeles. Or you have different choices based on the gifts that God gave you as opposed to the gifts that God gave someone else. So there's free will, there's parameters, and then there's consequences. That whenever we act, either good or bad can result of it. And we're really accountable for those results. So what did mankind do with his free will? What we see in Genesis 3 when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. They exercised their free will. And again, whenever we exercise our free will, there are always consequences, either good or bad. And it leads us to verse seven. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You see, Adam and Eve realized that they were no longer fully protected by God, so they covered themselves. They went into hiding. And we have been hiding ever since, and we've been blaming ever since. So think about your own life. Whenever you exercise free will and you make a decision, we like to make decisions, we have to realize that it could be a good decision, I hope that it is, but if it's a bad decision, it could hurt you. It could hurt people right around you that you love, and your decision could actually hurt people that you don't even know well or know at all. And the same holds true for others. Whenever someone else exercises their free will, uh, it can hurt them, it can hurt those right around them, and it can hurt those they don't even know. We can be the unfortunate recipients of someone else's use of free will. 
So it's not that God didn't care enough to do anything. God cared enough to give us a free will so we'd use it and not abuse it. And when someone abuses their use of free will, which in turn can hurt us, God cares enough to provide his power and healing if we desire his intervention. Scripture tells us this. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And he offers us something else as well. A future day when every wrong will be made right and every pain will be vanquished. And on that day, after Jesus returns, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. But until that wonderful day comes, God calls out to us as he has from the Old Testament times and says, I am the Lord who heals you. So come to me, turn to me, I love you. So when someone is hurt and they're blaming God, in a humble way, remind them that that may not be all that helpful. And remind them of free will and, and how it works. And that when somebody exercises their free will, it can hurt others and you're very sorry it hurt them. But then remind them that God loves them. God is longing to heal them and restore them. This is the God we serve. And because we have free will, I encourage us to all do something else as well with it. Trust him. Trust him. See, in the face of perceived contradictions, God is faithfully consistent. This is the God who made the heavens and the earth. This is the God who made you. This is the God who loves you, who calls you, and wants you to be his child. This is God. And it's so important that we know him. Especially in the culture we're living in, so many questions, so many attacks against the Christian faith. Friends, we need to be rooted in our faith. And that's why we're going to dive into this series in a couple weeks from now. It's going to be, be all fall until Thanksgiving. It's an all-church series called Rooted. It's not only that we know what we believe, but that we're so much better able to respond to the doubt that's out there and the hurt that's out there, knowing that we're rooted in him. Thanks for listening. You can stay connected throughout the week by following Montgomery Community Church on Facebook and Instagram. For more information about MCC, visit our website at mcc.church.